It's been known as the Masters, the ATP World Championships, the ATP World Tour Finals, and now the NITO ATP Finals. But while the title may have changed over its glorious history, one thing that's remained consistent throughout is that it's provided the stage for the very best players in the world to battle each other for the ultimate in bragging rights. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers, and I'm delighted to say that on the eve of the final staging of the event in London, in its 50th anniversary year, I spoke with the man who won the very first year-end title, the American Stan Smith. Stan was generous with his time, and I started by asking him to recall what stood out most from that first event in Tokyo in 1970. Well, it was a, an exciting time uh, because we, we had the Grand Prix sponsored by Pepsi, and uh, this was the culmination of the year. Uh, and at that time, we only had, I think, six players in the Masters, which became the ATP Finals. And so we did a round robin there where everybody played everybody else. And uh, it wasn't two groups, it just one group. And so we had, uh, you know, the top players as far as their point standings uh, for the year, you know, playing there in Tokyo. And it was, uh, it was, very cold inside this arena. That's one thing I remember. We were also playing on a court that was kind of a, I like to call it a Lego court. You know, it was kind of, uh, kind of patched together. And in fact, uh, in the last match against Rosewall, we had to stop because it kind of broke apart. And uh, that was a critical time I was serving for the match. Uh, so we, they were put together, uh, you know, just temporarily in the stadium. And they were, it was one of the early stages of this court. We played on it several times. We played it in Paris, I think, uh, maybe the next year, uh, that same court. And so it was a pretty fast court, uh, but it was the best way to think about it is logo pieces, you know, stuck together. And they broke apart in this critical time in the match. And it's cold and it's, uh, you know, I'm serving for the match. And, and so it's, uh, it was an exciting time, but uh, we, we, uh, I spent a lot of time with Joko Frenilovic, uh, you know, that week uh, there in Tokyo. It was a, it was a fun time. Uh, Joko was the I think, French Open runner-up that year and one of the six players. I mean, you, you say it was round robin. I mean, there was, there was no final then. Well, it was the player that had the best record against the other players in the round robin. So uh, when I played Rosewall in the fifth match, we were both 4-0. And uh, I had beaten Laver, and I think he had beaten Laver as well. Uh, so we knew that whoever won this match would be 5-0. and And I had another match to be played the next night against Arthur Ashe, but he had lost a couple times. And so we knew, everybody knew going into this match, whoever won this match would be 5-0. and uh, And as it turned out, I lost to Arthur the next night. But since I had beaten Laver, uh, I think we ended up tied and therefore – the head-to-head -head match determined who won the uh, the title. So it was it was like a final in a way, even though it was a round robin. So fine. So the, the penultimate match was the final in all to all intents and purposes. Wow. You said it was cold. I mean, Tokyo in December is freezing, but they must have had heating in the stadium. Not much. <laughs> they were, I think, on a low budget. And so uh, I remember the locker room was cold. It was a, you know, one little light there that would kind of, was our light for the locker room and, and uh, the stadium itself. We had 10,000 people, which helped. Uh, the, the body helped a little bit, but it was, it was cold. And people were wrapped up in, in uh, parkas and blankets and that sort of thing. And the, the good news was that there was a lot of enthusiasm from the Japanese fans, and they, uh, they enjoyed and, and really supported the players quite well. 
Why was Tokyo chosen? I know it was only six years since it had hosted the Olympics, but I mean, was was tennis big in Asia at that time? Well, I think that Olympic, uh, you know, event really put them on the map. And and even then, uh, this Jack Kramer, you know, I think was uh, he's considered the father of professional tennis. Uh, he was a great player, maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest. But he also became the greatest promoter of the game. And he did television. He, he was uh, involved with our the founding of our ATP. Um, and so he was, he was a visionary. Uh, and I think he saw that uh, Tokyo was certainly, or Japan in general, was going to be an important market uh, down the road. There weren't a lot of good players at the time from Japan. But uh, it was an opportunity to get the sport more international. And tell me a couple of details here. I mean, did you wear white clothing or coloured clothing? Because I know that the professional ranks had had coloured clothing, but the, the traditional amateur tournaments up to 1968 were all white. So what did you play in? Well, that was a time we started wearing pastels, uh, light blue, light yellow, uh, and, and different, you know, colours like that. So it was... It was past the stage of all white, uh, and uh, which I felt was was great for the game to get you know the people not just uh, kind of the country club kind of attitude of the game, but to get it out there so the general public could get involved and, and play the game. So uh, we were wearing white, but uh, the day was an interesting day. The day that I played Rosewall because it was my fourteen my twenty fourth birthday, the fourteenth of December. So uh 10,000 fans sang happy birthday to me in Japanese <laughs> well I don't know <laughs> it was uh, kind of a combination uh and also the other thing that was very significant in my mind was that I got my final draft noticed and uh, so I, I was in May the lottery took place and I realized I was my number was 23 and uh, they also went by the alphabet. So the S at the end of the you know, alphabet would be one of the last 23s uh, chosen. And I thought at first that was good, but uh, I realized quickly that, that 23 was one that was definitely gonna be uh, drafted. And so I actually played a lot of tennis during that year uh, to play, it, it, uh, play Davis Cup and also to play uh, in the major tournaments. And then I qualified for the masters. And so the, uh, they allowed me to play throughout that year, but they said, finally, you postpone your, your, uh, induction long enough. And so that day on the 14th, I got my final draft notes to report into the Los Angeles draft center, uh, on the 16th of December. So I played on the 14th against Rosewall. Then the next night I played Arthur, uh, around seven o'clock, got the midnight plane uh, to LA. And of course, with the time change, I arrived at, uh, uh, on December 15th, the same day I left. I went home, which was about an hour from the airport. The next day I reported in and uh, was drafted. So it may have been a professional sport, but the uh, US Army was not going to wait for somebody playing effectively the world championship. Well, you know, Arthur Ashe had been drafted. And he wasn't drafted. He actually was in the ROTC. He, he took a, at that time, you could, you could uh, be part of the ROTC in your college and, uh, and do training for six months. And then he went to West Point, became an officer. Charlie Passerell uh, was drafted like I was. And he, uh, uh, 
he went two years in the army uh, before me. So those two men kind of set the stage for me. So the, the gentleman in charge of the army tennis and army sports uh, became familiar with both Arthur and Charlie. And then when I came along, um, they had a program set for me that uh, once I was in the army, I went through the basic training as everyone else. And at that time it was pretty uh, hot time in Vietnam. Uh, but from there, they had me uh, do various uh, appearances for the Army at Army bases, at inner city areas. They wanted me to represent the United States playing Davis Cup. And so uh, I did that most of those two years I was in the Army. Uh, so it was, it was an opportunity for me to, to serve the country in that way and, and not go to Vietnam, which was obviously uh, a better alternative. Some of our younger listeners may not understand what a draft is or what an ROTC is. I mean, obviously, draft is the fact that you have to do your time in the military. But what was the ROTC? Well, that was a program for um, young students in the in the in college or outside of college to actually train uh, and go through six months of training uh, to prepare to become an officer. Uh, so it's an officer's training uh, corps, I guess it was called, and so. That was uh, what some of the, my brother did that, my older brother did that, and, and Arthur did that. Several people did that so that they would, um, they would become an officer instead of just being drafted as a private like I was. It's interesting, isn't it, that we have all sorts of uh, specialists that come in to help tennis players these days. And it seems so desperately old fashioned to think about you having been in the army while you're a tennis professional. But what did actually being in the army do for your development as both a an athlete and as a person well sir, first of all basic training was quite easy for me i was uh, i had been playing all year long i was in unbelievable condition and uh, i could i could do anything that uh, they wanted me to do one of the things we did was to run a mile we had to run it uh, i don't know if there's a specific time but we did the training where we ran in our boots and our fatigues and uh you know the fiscal part was it was so easy for me but, you know, I was doing uh, KP, you know, doing the, the dishes and uh, getting up early, going to bed early. They actually, uh, they actually would look at the bigger uh, and athletic people that were drafted. And uh, I, was in, I had gone to college. I was, an, I was athletic. And so they made me one of the leaders. And that was kind of their, the way they chose uh, people in the, in the Army at that time you know, for in those that were drafted and, and had no, you know, prior training of any kind. So I was one of the leaders. And uh, so I, I uh, again, had to go through all the training that we did. And it was, uh, in, in a way, it was quite a, a good experience for me to, to go through that thing, just like everybody else. You weren't a, uh, a U.S. Open or Wimbledon champion at that stage. That came a year or two later. But were you well known? Were you a bit of a star among the people in the army because you had won a lot of tennis matches? I uh, was the Masters champion, so uh, that was uh, a pretty big thing. That, you know, as as people looked at that, but but people did know I was a player, and I did try to keep it quiet. I didn't really announce it much. But one time, the CEO, the commanding officer, asked me to his office. And I said, boy, I'm in trouble for something. And uh, he said, I was going to go back to Washington to do a clinic in Washington, D.C. and also to uh, visit the Pentagon. And at that time, they were doing a volunteer army concept. 
and they were doing, they were trying to encourage uh, uh, the military to do things positively rather than punishing, punishing them for doing things wrong. And if they got so many merits, if they did things right, which, you know, you had to be on time, you had to make your bed, you had to keep your uniform clean and all that sort of thing. And so you got these merits and if you got enough merits, you'd get maybe go off base for a day, even during basic training. So I, I was interviewed at the Pentagon as one of the draftees and, and uh, but I did that and I did a clinic for the inner city area in Washington, DC. And so the officer wanted me to, to get his, he, his parents lived in Washington, DC and he wanted me to get the uh, stereo equipment that he had gotten when he had been in Vietnam, he'd gone to Hong Kong and bought the stereo equipment, brought it back home. And he wanted to bring it back to California where I was being, where I was uh, doing basic training. So uh, I ended up carrying his stuff back from Washington and he met me at the airport and thanked me for doing that. So I also was playing basketball on the basketball team with the unit had a basketball team. And so another player, myself uh, were basketball players. And so we ended up, you know, playing out, you know, representing our, our, our units. So uh, it was an interesting time. Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting time in tennis as well, because 1970 was the year that the tiebreak was first introduced at the US Open, came in at the other slams in 71. And I know you used the tiebreak in the Masters in Tokyo, and it was the nine point tiebreak, which is at four points all, it's sudden death. Were any matches decided on a sudden death point in Tokyo at the Masters? Well, you know, I can't remember exactly. I know that looking at the scores, we did have several tiebreakers uh, in the score columns. Um, and all I know is that I was serving at 6-5 against Rosewall when the court broke up. And uh, I, was, I won the first set. And so I think if I had lost that game, I we would have gone into a tiebreaker. Uh, but um, nine-point tiebreaker, as you probably know, it was two points, one player, then two, then two, then three. Uh, so one the last person to serve, served three points. So you'd think that would be an advantage, but if you went to on serve, you'd be behind two, four, serving at that point, which would be set point for the other player until it got to four all, then it's match point for both or set point. So I had some inter interesting match. I played Richie, um, the, I think in 71, where it came down to uh, two sets all, six games all, four points all, and uh, his serve, uh, he served in my backhand, he came in and then we had a long rally and it looked like I had won the point. I took the racket out of my hand and to shake hands with him and somehow he hit the ball on the end of his racket, the wood racket that he was using, got it back. I had to get the racket back in my hand to uh, return it. And he won the match. He became ranked number one that year again over Arthur Ashe and myself because of that one match which came, which came down to the one point at that time, the server had the choice on the final point of which court to serve to. The server? They changed it so that the returner, yeah, uh, back by 71, this was in 70, I guess, in 71, the server, uh, the returner had the choice of which court you're going to play the final point on. And which is the way they do it in the doubles these days when they have the deciding point on, on the ATP tour. That's the way it should be, but... Um, the play in the nine-point tiebreaker was really like Russian roulette. And to play the finals of the U.S. Open doubles, instead of playing the fifth set, we just played a nine-point tiebreaker in the dark. Uh, and it was uh, it, it really was exciting. And that, that there was pressure. When you're playing well, normally uh, you're doing well in the tiebreakers. Your confidence level is high, so you're, 
your uh, uh, you, you'd like to play the tiebreakers, but it was very tense getting those positions. Uh, you mentioned Richie there, Cliff Richie. He was actually the top player. He was the first one, I think, to qualify for the Masters, but he didn't play that year. Did that undervalue um, for the rest of you? Because, um, you know, you had six players, but actually um, uh, Newcomb, who was seventh, he didn't uh, play either. Well, certainly Richie not playing. He had had a great year, but, uh, you know, Laver and Rosewall and Ash and uh, myself had were were you know the probably the top players as as well as Newcomb. I'm not sure why Newcomb didn't play, but uh, it was a little bit of a you know the first year of anything was uh, always kind of confusing, and, and it, it worked out great to start it. And uh, we played in different cities uh, every year after that for several years, and so it was uh, it was a great way to to have the the year end event of the Grand Prix particularly. So. Uh, it gave value to the sponsor of the overall Grand Prix for the year. And obviously, we're talking 50 years later, and it's easy to be wise with hindsight, but can you claim any sense in Tokyo in December 1970 that you were starting a tradition that would run and run and run? Well, you never know. When you start something where you're a, a kind of a, a groundbreaker in any kind of thing, you never know if it's going to be uh, sustainable or not. And it, it, the concept was so good. The Grand Prix was around for a long time and it kind of, you know, uh, faded away. But uh, the idea of having a year-end tournament of the top players uh, was one that, you know, as I said, Jack Kramer as a visionary uh, realized that this was significant to have the top players get together at the end of the year. And, and you know, it hasn't gotten the status of, let's say, a major uh, in some people's minds, but in many people's minds, it is, uh, it is as difficult or more difficult, certainly to get to it, to be the top eight in the world. And then to win that is significant. So uh, it's an important event in the calendar to today. today. And it was uh, a new event and exciting to see whether it was going to last when we played. And you mentioned that you played in different cities. I mean, in 71, it was in Paris. Uh, 72, it was in Barcelona. Um, and in fact, 71 had six players and 72 had eight players, which is what we have now. Um, to what extent do you feel that it it took a while to really establish the format that would make it into the the big prestigious event that you now refer to being sort of probably the biggest tournament after the four majors? It didn't take long, you know, in 72, as you said, it was eight players and uh, two groups. Uh, and an interesting thing happened in Barcelona. Several things happened that were pretty interesting. First of all, guess when they scheduled the first match, best of five sets in the semifinals? Uh, late at night. 10 o'clock. So Nastasi played Connors at 10 o'clock in the first semifinals. And uh, Gorman and I uh, were the second semifinals. And so we didn't know if we were going to start at, at uh, 11.30, 12.30, 2.30. As it turned out, we saw the schedule prior to the event. So Connors and Gorman and I were training together that week before. So we stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning every night and got up at 11 o'clock just in case something like this would happen. And sure enough, it did. And fortunately, I ended up playing Gorman after a short match, Nastasi and Connors, Nastasi beat Connors in about an hour and 45 minutes. So we started at midnight 
And about two in the morning, one of the ball kids was there and he had a tack in his hand and he was putting a tack in the ball. And this kid probably was 12 years old and he was bored. And plus he must've been tired. But uh, anyway, we realized that the ball was getting, the balls were getting flat, you know, and, and dead. And we finally reali realized it was this ball kid that put the tack in the ball. But the most interesting thing about Barcelona was that uh, uh, Gorman was ahead two sets to one and seven, six. And it was my serve. And he got to his ad match point. And at match point, I look up and Gorman's walking towards the umpire and the umpire is, is gesturing to me to come over to the umpire's chair. And I was a little bit annoyed at first because it was match point and I was concentrating and trying to stay in the match. And the umpire announced to me that Mr. Gorman is going to default. And uh, all he had to do was win one more point and he was in the finals and it was the, it was the second year of this huge event. And he realized he had beaten Labor in the semis of or the quarters of Wimbledon that year and in, in, uh, early in the year. And he had hurt his back during that match. And I played him in the semis, ironically, and he had two days rest. Well, in this case, we were finishing is about a quarter to three in the morning. And the final was going to be played at six o'clock that afternoon. So he knew that if he won that point, he would not be able to play based on how his back was at Wimbledon. Uh, so he defaulted to me. So I'd have a final. They've been promoting Nastasi myself. They've been promoting the finals, of course, in general, this second year. This, it was a new sponsor uh, that year. Uh, so it was uh, very important for the event. And, and this is one of the great sportsmanship uh, you know, moves of all time for a guy to default, having match point in a major event. Have you talked to Tom Gorman about that over the years since? Well, yes. Tom and I, Tom was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding and uh, we were great friends. And so uh, that was even before that. We were, we got both got married after that, but uh, we were good friends on the Davis Cup team together. And, and I knew his back situation. I kind of realized that he was not running very much in the fourth set, just kind of hitting the ball as hard as he could to end the point. And he, he was hitting winners and he was hitting serves uh, and not really, you know, do anything else after that was able to, to hold a serve. So it was a, uh, it was an amazing moment. Uh, I'm sure we can appreciate it uh, every bit today. Um, and you played, uh, if that was Barcelona, that would have been 72. So that would have been the same year that you and Nastasi played a five set Wimbledon final. So that would have been a terrific end to the year. Well, plus we played Davis Cup uh, just about a month or so before that in the in the finals of Davis Cup in Romania uh, with he and Tyriac, which was uh, like World War Three at the time. It was probably the most difficult uh, situation I've ever been in. So all that was leading up to it. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why they're promoting that match so hard to have another rematch of, uh, of Nastasi and myself. Um you said we're saying that uh, we've moved to eight players in 1972. Um, tennis is essentially a knockout sport. All the tournaments have a knockout draw. And yet there was the round robin uh, for the first two years. But instead of going to, say, 16 players playing a knockout from um, last 16 onwards, it stuck with the two groups of round robin. Why was that? Why eight players playing two groups of round robin? Well, it's a good question. I think it does provide uh, the opportunity 
for a player to have a bad match and still be able to get to the finals. And it wasn't until, I don't know exactly what year, it's been probably 10 or 15 years now that they, they uh, made sure that you couldn't try to lose a match. So you wouldn't play a certain player in the semifinals uh, after the round robin. And for a while, that, that was the way it was. You could, you wouldn't, if you didn't win that match, you might play somebody you didn't want to, you, uh, you didn't want to play in the semifinals. And so uh, that was corrected, but it took a long time to correct that. But I think the fact of having television, having uh, players play a number of matches, if you had a great player lose the first round in a knockout situation, uh, you know, he was gone. But this way, a player could hang in there and even come back and win after they've lost in that uh, round robin situation. So it's a great situation for TV. It's great for the fans. It's great for everybody. Uh, it's tough for the players. Uh, they have to focus. And now they've, they've uh, solved that issue of, of adding prize money for all the matches and then, you know, making it a little more difficult to know, you know, who you're going to play in the semifinals while you're playing. When we look back to the first Masters in um, 1970, the personnel were very similar to the foundation of the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals, in 1972. Were they strongly interlinked? Were they very much two core events of the birth of professional tennis? Well, it was really it kind of preceded the ATP formation. But we as players were, at that time, in the late 60s and 70s, were looking at at forming a union. Uh, and I think that was the birth, uh, the nexus of that whole ATP formation. Uh, and we did several things. We had, a, we had a federation of professional players. Uh, we looked at this Grand Prix situation. Uh, we were trying to figure out the ranking system, which was really critical to the game. And the ATP uh, you know, created the, the ranking system uh, I remember Mike Estep was quite involved. Arthur Ashe was quite involved. We, Arthur actually was the one that created the code of conduct. Uh, I remember, you know, him walking around the locker room and asking players, well, what do you think about this? You know, should this be a penalty? What should be the penalty? And how should players have to be able to behave on the court? And he was, you know, epitome of, uh, of sportsmanship on the court. And he certainly had some clashes with guys that I had clashes with too, like a, uh, Nastasi particularly and, and others on the court. So uh, that was the start of the players getting together, figuring out that this was an international sport. Players from all over the world uh, were playing all over the world and we should be able to play whenever we wanted to. The national associations were in con complete control of the uh, calendar. They're in complete control of the major tournaments, the Grand Slam events, which they still are. Uh, and the ITF really was the elephant in the room that the players were, you know, beholden to at the time. And so the players felt that they should have a little stronger uh, say in, in, in the way the game was run, certainly in all the aspects, whether it's the code of conduct, the rankings, how players were accepting the tournaments, where they could play, when they could play, certainly prize money, the conditions. Uh, all those issues were issues that were evolving at that time uh, from this. And I got to give uh, Jack Kramer a great amount of uh, credit for, for, you know, his vision of what the game should be like and players should be playing for prize money, not for guarantees. At that time, 
players were going to various tournaments and given a guarantee of $500, $1,000 to play. And, and uh, they were accepted on their star quality. We even had a, uh, a term, star quality, which would determine whether you could get into a tournament. And tournament directors wanted to get the stars there. And uh, so they would accept a guy who was well-known but not playing as well as other players. And so we felt it should be the rankings, the seedings, uh, the acceptances and tournaments should be based on performance and not on uh, you know, reputation. And what went into star quality? What into it? Well, it was a, a ticket sales thing. I remember Concho Gonzalez was around, hadn't played, wasn't playing a lot, but you know, people wanted to see him play. Uh, you wouldn't probably know who he is, but he was uh, he was uh, uh, one of the great competitors of all time, and and one of the but, great servers, great movers. And but was he not like McEnroe and Kyrgios in the sense that you never knew when he was going to blow his top, and therefore it was that constant thing of, you know, you never know whether you're going to have a nice, uh, easy Pancho Gonzalez playing a tennis match or him sort of screaming at an umpire. Exactly. You're exactly right, Chris. And he had a scar on his cheek and everybody thought it was from a knife fight. I think he might have fallen off his tricycle or something when he was a kid, but, but he was he was scary. And uh, one time we were in uh, in Chicago and played in an exhibition match and Lutz and I were waiting to play doubles and he and Rosewell were playing and he came in after the match he had lost and uh, he, he grabbed the, uh, the fan at the top of the locker room and said, I told you to the locker room attendant, I told you to, to turn this off. And he started yanking out of the ceiling. And we were cowering over in the corner, you know, afraid to get hit by anything uh, with Poncho. But he was, he was fiery. And he had the star quality. Uh, you mentioned that it was in the early years, it went from city to city. And then it settled. It settled in Madison Square Garden, uh, one of the great uh, urban sporting venues in America. Um, do you regret having missed out on that era? Uh, well, I took part of that area to a certain extent. I remember playing another late match, and it was doubles at that time, but we finished it a quarter to three, and the only people in the stands were the ushers and uh, the spouses of the players uh, at that point in time at, at night. So it was. I played a few matches there uh, at the end of my career, but that was a great venue. The players loved it. The fans supported it. The TV was there. Uh, it had the great history of, of not only tennis but uh all you know basketball and other great sports that had taken place there so uh that was it was great to have it in one place and uh certainly that led to the evolution of, of moving that again uh but when you have a great venue like london for instance uh you know why well, move it uh but the game is international and uh and there's players from all over the world playing and fans around the world that like to see the great events. And so I think it's great to see it moved. Uh, you hate to see it move from London because it's such a great event that players love it. Fans, of course, have supported it. Uh, the, the venue is perfect as far as the setup of the court and uh, the way they take care of the players and the fans and the press is uh, very impressive. Just a quick word about some of your other stuff. I mean, you, you wrote this lovely book saying some people think I'm a shoe because today's younger generation uh, know the name Stan Smith because of a, uh, a tennis shoe. Um, did that come about because of your first master's title? No, I don't think there's a connection with that necessarily. The, the, although it was not too far after that, that uh, Adidas wanted to get 
a stronger presence in the United States in 72-ish. And uh, so we started talking about this shoe that was uh, already in production, uh, made by Adidas, and uh, the Robert Hayet, who was a, a French player, uh, had his name on the shoe. And so they wanted to get an American. And at that time, I was the number one in the world, an American. So uh, we worked out an agreement. They put my picture on the tongue of the shoe. His name would be on the side. Then we had different iterations. And finally, after about four or five years, they took his name off the shoe entirely. And uh, my name's been on the shoe ever since. Uh, and you know, in 2012, they actually took it off the market for two years because it had kind of lost its, uh, its niche and, and popularity. So they, re they relaunched it in 2014. And then uh, there, it was a genius sort of uh, marketing effort that took place totally through social media and it, it took off again. So it's, uh, it's been fun to see the shoe. So I, I wanted to make sure that they documented the, the history of the shoe because it's been one of the best sellers. I guess it's now just uh, gone over 100 million pairs sold. So I wanted to make sure that, that it was documented properly. And there's so many people that have followed the shoe. <laughs> uh, you know, there's these shoe freaks and, and sneaker heads that, uh, that, you know, that love every inch of the shoe, the shoelaces, the boxes even, they're important to those people. So uh, a lot of people have followed the shoe. And, and a lot of, of course, a lot of people have worn the shoe around the world. And it's the fun thing is it's, you know, Older people, younger people, men, women, boys, girls. Uh, you even see daughters wearing the same shoe as their mother, which is uh, one of the you know things you'd never expect would happen. So, and do you get youngsters coming up to you saying, "Oh, you're a real person"? Yeah, and that's uh, a majority of people in the world uh, know my name more than they know you know that I was a player or a person of any kind. <laughs> um. In the 1970s, you and your wife Marjorie mentored a black South African player, Mark Matabane, during the apartheid era. Tell us what that involved and how much of a sort of a risk that was, given that um, South Africa, with this sort of racially segregated policy of, of government, was actually a bit of a pariah state. Well, we first were down in Johannesburg, and I was hitting some balls with my doubles partner, and this young black uh, kid came up to Margie, and she was watching as well as we were just warming up and uh, started talking to him. And, and he was actually a wild card in the tournament. He was the top black player in the area and he'd gotten a wild card. And um, he wasn't a great player, but he could play. And so he and I hit a few balls afterwards. Then we went into the, uh, into the clubhouse and little did I know that he wasn't allowed in the clubhouse, but uh, since he was with us, uh, he was in there. So make a long story short, we helped him uh, to get a contact here in the United States and he got a scholarship in tennis. Uh, it was such a cultural shock that it was difficult for him. And he ended up going to four different colleges because of the cultural shock and, and just getting used to what it was like to be in America. And, uh, but he was a very hard worker. Uh, he actually became the editor of the annual uh, for the college at the end of the year. He got the award for the top international uh, student. And uh, he was like a second son to us. We helped him along the way. Then he actually wrote a book about his uh, life uh, in South Africa, probably the first black author to write about 
life in South Africa. And uh, it was a bestseller. Oprah Winfrey got him on, his, on her show. And we actually did an interview here at my house with uh, he and I, and, and she did a series on friends. And, and, uh, and then he wrote several other books. He, he married a, a, a white woman here in, in the United States, has three wonderful children that all went to Princeton. And uh, my wife was in the first class of Princeton. And so it was pretty special to us. Uh, and to see them all get to Princeton, a, a kid that grew up in Alexandria, the township, to have three kids there, it was pretty special. So uh, he is still doing well. Those kids have done great. Uh, and uh, it's been one of the highlights of my life, actually, just to, to, to reach out and, and see how well you know he's done in his life. And did you take any stick for offering that kind of help to a black South African at that stage? Uh, maybe a little bit, but it didn't matter to me. It was, you know, he just was a great kid, hard worker, had ambition and, and uh, realized that uh, it was the American dream, really, to be able to come to the United States and to become successful. Uh, he brought his brothers and sisters over the United States. About three of them I came over and got a, you know, education in the United States. They're living here now. His mother came over for a while and now she's back here and living here full time. And uh, so it, it uh, it was great. It's it's his story has been been fun. We're talking really about values, and I, I get the sense that today's younger generation understand that tennis is not everything. It's important, but it's not uh, everything. Uh, maybe that's an example that's been set by the likes of Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic. How do you feel about the values in today's tennis? Well, I you know you mentioned three gentlemen that have foundations that are reaching out to people in need. You know, all three of them have done tremendous things, not only in their country but in other countries. Roger being down in South Africa, and uh, his mother being South African. I think there's a connection there. And then Rafa in Spain, and then uh, Novak is has been reaching out in Serbia and other parts of the world world as well. And and uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the younger players realize that there's more to life than just uh, playing tennis, that they do have a platform. They can do quite a bit. We, we're doing things here, my wife and I, with the Boys and Girls Club here in, in the United States, where there's uh, the same sort of demographics. There's, you know, We live in a kind of a wealthy area, but it's also a tremendous amount of poverty, which is unknown. And uh, there's several you know, thousand people living under the poverty line here in South Carolina. So uh, it, it's important that the players, you know, reach out and use their platform. And, and certainly financially, they've been able to do tremendous things, uh, not only themselves, but also in doing exhibitions and, and uh, fundraising events to, uh, to help those that are in need. As we draw this conversation to a close, we've been talking about a tournament, mostly over about 50 years. You are president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Uh, how important do you feel it is for today's youngsters, both players and fans, to understand the history of tennis? Well, I, you know, we're trying to celebrate the champions to remind people of, of the history of the game and to also inspire younger players to play the game and so it's a it's a combination of those things that we're we're really working on and and the biggest thing i've been now for nine years the president and the biggest thing that todd martin and i've been trying to do we're trying to make it international and it is at the international tennis hall of fame it's the fraternity and and i've said this i've said this many times that the the very best players arguably 
uh, are have been recognized in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. If you go to the museum and you see those players that are there, you see the memorabilia that are there. Uh, you know, one of my good friends was Bunny Austin uh, from the UK, and he was the first man to wear shorts. He was he wore he used a racket that had supports on the side of the racket, a wood racket at that time. And he actually wrote an article for the London Times in 1938, advocating professional tennis, 1938. And so, you know, Jack Kramer was a visionary. He won Wimbledon in the forties, but, uh, but Bunny Austin, uh, who got to the finals twice of Wimbledon and he and Fred Perry won Davis Cup a few times, um, you know, was a visionary knowing that, you know, professional sports should be, you know, tennis should be a professional sport, not just an amateur sport. So, uh, you know, it, the Hall of Fame has a lot of stories like that of, uh, of not only players, but contributors to the game. And now we've been honoring, recognizing wheelchair players. So that's, uh, that's been fun. Chris, I just thought you might want to take a look at this. This is the first uh, trophy for the Masters. This is uh, what I got when I won the Masters in 1970. It strikes me as quite small, but I mean, I suppose it's a replica, isn't it? But it's well, you um, know, the replica of the Wimbledon Trophy, which is just behind me, is also pretty small, but it's very significant. And so, uh, actually, most of the trophies I have that are most significant are a little smaller than some others that I've won that are, you know, from smaller events. It so, makes you realize that the game has grown dramatically. The prize money is a little bit higher now than it was when I won the uh, Masters. But fifteen thousand dollars you got. <laughs> yeah, at that time it was pretty good. Yeah, and so how do you feel the tournament will be sent off in London? It's the fiftieth anniversary staging. It's the last time in London. There won't be any crowds, but there'll be millions of people watching and listening around the world. It's been. Uh, I think it's been remarkable to see what's happened at some of these major tournaments, like the U.S. Open and uh, Roland Garros. Unfortunately, there was no Wimbledon, but um, the players have been competing well. They've uh, they've been fighting as if you know, the fans were there. I think it would be obviously a lot more atmosphere if you had the fans. It's sad that it's going to end up this way without the fans being able to support the tournament and the players at, uh, in London there at the O2 Arena, but. Um, It'll be a it'll be a, a kind of a sentimental ending to a very unusual year, which hopefully is not going to be as unusual next year. Uh, hopefully, we'll have Wimbledon, the fans there in, in London, will be able to see that great event again. And uh, this tournament will move on to Turin, which uh, will be well supported, I'm sure, by the Italian fans and, and other international fans that want to go and watch it there. So. It's going to be a bittersweet ending, I think, there at the O2 Arena. Wonderful to have the first champion, Stan Smith, talking about the 50th anniversary staging of what's known now as the NITO ATP Finals. Join us next weekend when I'll be speaking to the 1993 Finals champion, Michael Stich. And remember that from Sunday the 15th to Sunday the 22nd, ATP Tennis Radio will have live ball-by-ball -ball commentary of all matches, singles and doubles, with the build-up starting 30 minutes before the first match of the day. To access that commentary, click on the Listen button at the top of the ATP website or simply visit the TuneIn Radio app and search for ATP Tennis Radio. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis.